Good morning. I'd like to invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, John's Gospel, the 19th chapter, and uh, we'll begin reading at verse 16. John 19, verse 16. And as you are arriving there, let me invite you, if you would, to uh, bow your heads, close your eyes, but open your hearts as we uh, listen for God's word this morning. <coughs> Lord Jesus, thank you that you are here with us. Thank you that we can affirm with confidence that you are in this place, that you are not just an idea, that you are not just history, that you are not just future, but you are present with us now. And so, Lord, as you prayed so many times, so we pray. Uh, may we have eyes to see you and ears to hear you. For your sake and to your glory, we pray. Amen. So John chapter 19 contains John's account of the crucifixion of Jesus. And this is what we read. Then... Pilate gave Jesus to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. Carrying the cross by himself, Jesus went to the place called Skull Hill, in Hebrew, Golgotha, where they crucified him. There were two others crucified with him, one on either side with Jesus between them. And Pilate posted a sign over him that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Uh, the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, so that many people could read it. Then the leading priests came to Pilate, and they said, change it from the king of the Jews to he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate replied, what I have written, I have written. It stays exactly as it is. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said, let's not tear it, but throw dice to see who gets it. This fulfilled the scripture that says, they divided my clothes among themselves and they threw dice for my robe. So that is what they did. Standing near the cross were Jesus, were Jesus' mother and mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Woman, he is your son. And he said to this disciple, She is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. We'll ask God to bless this reading, his holy and inspired word. Amen. When we think of the cross, we often think of two pieces of wood. Uh, we often think of the vertical post and the horizontal beam. We think of two pieces of wood forming a cross. But in reality, uh, however the actual cross was designed, there's yet another piece of wood that's important. Uh, because the Gospels tell us that over Jesus' head there is a sign, a wooden sign that was carved out. And on that sign 
are written uh, the words, the king of the Jews. Uh, this sign would have been a feature of every single Roman crucifixion. Uh, this was a sign that would indicate the charge against the accused. Uh, this is a sign that would let you know as you were making your way across the public thoroughfare, uh, this is the reason that this individual is being executed, humiliated, cast out. This is the charge. The sign above Jesus' head says he is the king of the Jews. So you ask the question, a question that we've been asking ourselves throughout this entire series on the atonement, why did Jesus have to die? Why was Jesus crucified? And if we are going to be uh, biblical, if we are going to be precisely scriptural, if we want to be as literal as we can to adhere to what the Bible says, then the answer must be that Jesus died because he was the king of the Jews. John actually makes quite a bit about this sign business. It's sort of a bizarre exchange that happens. Can you imagine the leaders of the temple coming back after the crucifixion has already been underway, and they want, of all things, to wordsmith the sign? Uh, it isn't exactly that he is the king of the Jews. Uh, more precisely, he said he is the king of the Jews. And they go back and forth with Pilate, and for the first time, perhaps in his career, Pilate actually takes a stand. He draws a line, and he says, no, uh, what I have written, I have written. I get it. This isn't because Pilate believes that Jesus is the king of the Jews, uh, Pilate has actually spent some time already interrogating Jesus about that specific charge. And Pilate has evidently already drawn a conclusion because just a few verses prior to this, he begins to mock the Jewish leaders saying, this is your king, this is your king, are you kidding me? This pathetic wretch is your king? No, Pilate is smarting. Pilate is upset. Pilate knows he has come out on the wrong side of this exchange. He has been swept up by forces that he doesn't like and that he cannot control, by a populace that is having an intramural argument, a family squabble. It should have been settled in-house, and instead the state of Rome has been dragged into it. Rome has been co-opted to further the purposes of the temple. And for Pilate, this is unacceptable. He knows in some way he has failed, he has lost. Rome is the one who does the co-opting. And so he's upset. And this, for Pilate, is clearly a way of putting it to the Jewish leaders just a little bit. Your easy convenience with the state of Rome, your easy, convenient relationship with the state of Rome when it's suitable for your purposes and your intents, fine. But this is your king. This is how helpless you are. This is how wretched you are. This is how broken you are. Don't forget it. Rome is still in charge. Here's Jesus, the king of the Jews. But his petulance 
inadvertently exposes something important. Uh, His snide comment brings us, in fact, to the heart of the cross. It's interesting that even though all four of the Gospels describe the crucifixion from different perspectives, with different emphases, focusing on different details, uh, the, the account of the crucifixion is varied and nuanced as you move from gospel to gospel to gospel. And this is how we would imagine it would be if it's truly eyewitness work. But the one thing, one thing that all four of the gospels agree on is this particular detail. There was a sign. And on the sign were written the words, the king of the Jews. In addition to the sign with the charges set against him, all four of the Gospels tell us that Jesus at some point in this ordeal was mocked by being wrapped in a royal purple robe. He was put on display as a mockery of royalty. And then there is that crown of thorns pressed into his skull another indication of his status, the king of the Jews. This is hardly a surprise. It's hardly astonishing to anybody who's been reading the Gospels. In the Gospels, the Gospel is always the good news, the Gospel of the kingdom of God. In the Gospels, the Gospel is always the good news of the Gospel of the Kingdom of God. It's always about the arrival of God's Kingdom. It's always about the coming of God's Kingdom. It's always about the presence of God's Kingdom. The good news in the Gospels is precisely that God's Kingdom has come. And then there's more. At his trial with Pilate, Jesus is being interrogated just a few verses before the text that we read today. And Jesus is asked directly by Pilate himself, are you the king of the Jews? And after holding his tongue and being silenced in the face of charge after charge, refusing to defend himself, here with this question, in this moment, Jesus responds and he says, yes, I am the king of the Jews. Why was Jesus crucified? Why did Jesus get crucified? Because he was the king of the Jews. And what that means is that Jesus was executed by the Roman government for the crime, the high crime of sedition. Jesus was executed for the sin of sedition. So what is sedition? I uh, looked up a number of definitions. Here's one that captures some of the nuance. Sedition is overconduct, such as speech and organization, that tends towards insurrection against the established order. Sedition often includes subversive, uh, subversion of a constitution, an incitement of discontent towards or resistance against established authority. And Jesus dies charged with, accused of sedition. He's an enemy of Rome. 
we need to be very clear. Make no mistake about it. The crucifixion is a political event. The fascinating thing about sedition is that its value is often a matter of who is observing it. Uh, The beauty of sedition is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, If you are a part of the established authority, if you are the one who has the power, or if you benefit from the established authority, and somebody is trying to overthrow the established authority, then sedition is bad news for you. Seditious people are removed from the equation. If you're the temple authority, Jesus is a threat to your power. If you're a temple authority, Jesus is a threat to your credibility because he puts on display the hypocrisy that everybody is aware of but afraid to name. Jesus is a challenge to your control. If you're the Roman government, Jesus is a threat to your control. Jesus is a man of the people. He's stirring the populace. He's a threat to your power. And when there is a threat, you remove the threat. If you are the one who is part of the established authority or if you are benefiting from the established authority, sedition is bad news. On the other hand, if you are the one who is suffering at the hands of the established authority, if you are the one who is being oppressed, if you are the one who is being dealt with unjustly, then sedition begins to sound an awful lot like hope. When Jesus is executed as a rival king, he is absolutely a threat to Rome. He is absolutely a threat to the temple authorities and the power elite, and the structures and statuses of his day, precisely because he did bring hope. So let me see if I can bring this conversation from the level of nation-state politics to the level of personal politics for just a moment. And I want to invite you to notice with me that we charge people with sedition all of the time. Um, not with the force of law, I understand that, but rather with the force of rejecting and removing the people and the ideas and the values that we find threatening to our power and our authority. You aren't American enough if you. You aren't Christian enough if you. You aren't capitalist enough if you. You aren't loyal enough, if you. And therefore you are a threat. And when we do that, might we pause just long enough to consider 
the possibility that in the process, we are crucifying somebody's best hope. Jesus dies as a king. But Jesus also dies in our place. When Jesus was crucified, everybody in the story is guilty. When Jesus is crucified, everybody in the story is guilty. Pilate was guilty of great injustice. The Pharisees are guilty of envy. The soldiers are guilty of cruelty. The crowds are guilty of mockery. Even the disciples are guilty of cowardice and denial and betrayal. Everybody in the story is guilty, guilty, guilty. And Jesus is literally the only innocent one. Jesus is the only one in this whole scene who isn't actually seditious. But he's bearing the guilty charge in everybody's place. He does this because he says that his kingdom is different than any sort of kingdom on earth. He says as much in chapter 18. If you look back at chapter 18, you'll see in verse 36 where he says that if I was an earthly king, if I was a king like all of the other kings, my followers would have fought for me. If I was a king like earthly kings are kings, there would have been violence. Because that's how earthly kings get power, by fighting for it. The way to get power is conquest. Did you know that you have a kingdom? Did you know that you have a kingdom? Dallas Willard says that your kingdom is the effective range of your will. Jesus says at one point in his ministry that whoever does the will of his Father in heaven is his family. Belongs to him. Are a part of his kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is wherever his Father's will is done. That's why when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he says, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? It means your will be done. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He prays for the expansion of the effective range of God's will. Your kingdom is where your will is done. Now, I have a fairly small kingdom, right? I'm really acutely aware of the idea that the effective range of my will is fairly limited. You may have a small kingdom also. In fact, you may be thinking, I have no kingdom at all. My, the effective range of my will is practically nil. But uh, Dallas Willard uses the example of saying, if I was to walk up to you, and slide my hand into your pocket and help myself to your wallet or to grab some candy, you would suddenly be very aware that I was violating your kingdom. The effective range of your will is at least control over your person. You have a kingdom. I have a kingdom where my will is done. And if I'm to be absolutely honest with you, my kingdom looks a lot more like the kingdoms of this earth that Jesus refers to as being different from his kingdom. 
My kingdom often looks like the desire to win. My kingdom often looks like I want power and I'm willing to do conquest to get power. My kingdom is a kingdom of conquest. It's a kingdom of winning. I want to win the conversation as if the conversation can be won or lost. I want to win approval. I want to win at my ideas. I want to win the good life for myself. I want to win. wonder how true that is of you. I was at a retreat this past weekend, and in the room we had a uh, little object lesson that I was doing, and I asked people to just pull a rubber band and hold it tightly to feel the tension in the rubber band, and then wondered aloud, how long can you hold tension? And somebody in the back of the room said, I bet I can hold this tension longer than anybody else in the room. The kingdom is showing up. I'm going to win. I'm going to be the best. I'll beat you all. Somebody else said, go ahead, put the rubber band down. He said, I can quit faster than anybody else. It doesn't matter if you say I'm competitive or I'm not competitive. We all have a version of our kingdom is threatened and we're going to win. We're going to saddle up. We're going to arm up. We're going to do conquest. We're going to impose our will. We're going to win. Jesus says, if I was an earthly king, like we all are, my people would have fought to win. But, he says, I'm not an earthly king. If he had avoided the cross, if he had let the crowds um, begin some great revolution, if he had simply run away and the crowds had simply gotten mad and revolted. Can you imagine what Rome would have done? The authority, the power of the day. They would have come down with an iron fist. There would have been blood everywhere. History tells us so. Instead, he took the blow. Instead, he went to the cross. He allowed himself to be judged guilty in our place. So that the blow would fall on him alone. Jesus dies as a king. Jesus dies in our place. Jesus dies to launch his kingdom. The cross is more of a coronation than an execution. And he writes, says, that the cross is the day that the revolution began. A new kingdom is being launched. A new kingdom becomes present. It's fascinating that the sign above Jesus is depicted in three separate languages, a detail only recorded by John. Three separate languages, languages of all of the people of the known world. It's designed to communicate, to proclaim the kingship of Jesus to everybody. And here's what that means. Jesus dies as your representative. In the world of the Bible, the idea of a representative is just critically important. The Messiah is a kingly figure who is understood to represent all of the Jews. And the Jews are the people who are understood to represent all of humanity. 
And humanity are the ones who are understood to represent all of creation. Here's the principle. As goes the representative, so go the rest. Over and over again we see this. So, for example, when the king of Israel sins, the whole nation of Israel is counted as being in sin. It's a representative. As goes the king, so goes the rest. When Israel is blessed, it will be through it will be so that the rest of the world is blessed through them. According to God's covenant with Abraham, he says, I will bless you in order that you will be a blessing to the whole world. As goes the representative people, so go the rest. When humanity sins, when humanity falls, we're told that the whole cosmos groans under the weight of sin. As goes the representative, as goes the Messiah, as go the Hebrew people, the people of blessing, as goes humanity, so go the rest. And what that means is you get to take on the characteristics of your representative. That's why Paul can say over and over and over again, I was crucified with Christ. Sometimes we're so fascinated by the idea of a substitution and in our place and as our representative that we forget the I am crucified with Christ. Over and over again, he says, my sins are crucified too. When my representative dies, I die. So what is the sin? We often think about sin as being discreet, independent, moral acts naughty things that we do. And sometimes we wink and giggle and snicker about sins. But in this context, with all of this talk about kings and kingdoms and overthrowing governments, I'd like to suggest that the sin that we die to is the sin of sedition against God's kingdom. When I do with my kingdom what earthly kingdoms do, when I say I'm going to get power, I'm going to conquer, I'm going to win, I'm going to separate, I'm going to divide, when I do that, I am in violent opposition to the kingdom of God, to the kingdom that Jesus defines as a place where it's all about giving and not getting, sacrificing and not conquering, including and not excluding. On the cross, my kingdom dies. My will dies. My opposition to Jesus' kingdom dies. Jesus suffers the death of a traitor that I should have died. And instead, in its place, he gives me the ability to live in this new kingdom that he is establishing. And my life becomes an expression of God's will. And my identity and allegiance is to no earthly king or kingdom.
to God alone. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the day that the revolution began. Help us to see our sedition. Help us to see the places that we have placed earthly kings and kingdoms, where we have placed power and conquest above you. Let your will be done on earth, through and in us, even as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.